This is Ideas at the House, your weekly dose of live talks direct from the Sydney Opera House. The following episode was recorded live at Antidote 2018. On March 30th of 2012, I woke up to a new body, uh, which caused me to fall out of bed and, and land in the hospital. I didn't so much land in the hospital as I, I crawled. Um, I had an addiction to Diet Coke at the time, and I knew there was no way I was going to start this journey without a little caffeine. So I literally crawled to the corner store, um, and I got a, a Diet Coke, and I um, got a banana because I thought it would help, and, and off I went. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that I remember most about my hospital stay was um, how fun it was. Uh, my friends came by, they brought me presents, the bed, it went all the way up to the ceiling and, and back down again, over and over. Um, and it was interesting, everybody thought I was in denial, um, but I wasn't. Uh, the truth of the matter is, and it remains, I was never bothered by the change in my body. Um, I used to think that my disability began on that fateful day, uh, but what the last six years have taught me is, is that my disability actually began a few centuries prior. So disability didn't exist before industrialization. So you would have a, uh, a hearing impaired person, you would have a blind person, and you would have me with a cane, and we would be living in our communities, but we would never be grouped together as this thing. There was no thing called disability. And what happened was is industrialization rolled around, and it created this expectation that bodies could perform in rote and mechanized ways. And suddenly, for the first time in history, uh, there was a subset of bodies that could not perform as expected. So industry turned to doctors and philosophers who then diagnosed those bodies as disabled. Those disabled people were then segregated and institutionalized. When I got out of the hospital, I needed eyeglasses and a cane to get around. And for me, the question became, why did I have so much choice with my eyeglasses when I didn't with my cane? You have to understand, it wasn't the change in my body that caused me pain. It was the change in my identity. I had lost the ability to choose. About eight months after I first got sick, I discovered a beautiful purple cane that changed my life. I had been watching the, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movies at the time and decided I needed a badass alter ego, so I became the girl with the purple cane, and that became my blog. Um, and I used that blog, even though I didn't have any experience in design, I used that blog to advocate for design and disability. And that ultimately led to the creation of my organization, which is called the Disabled List. But the Disabled List actually didn't start out as such. It, it was actually originally called the Inclusive Fashion and Design Collective. I chose the word inclusive for a really embarrassing reason. I'm a tomboy, and I like to wear boxer briefs. Um, they're so much better than women's underwear. They, they don't give you wedgies. They come in good colors. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is the men's are too big for me, so I have to order the, bo the boy sizes. And I remember around the time I was naming my organization, I ordered a pair of boxer briefs online, and when I after I placed the order, the confirmation email showed up, and it said, congratulations, your big boy undies are on the way. <laughs> I canceled the order, um, <laughs> and um, it made me realize that I didn't want to just pigeonhole my work into disability because there were so many things that I wanted and needed. And so, for me, the word inclusive, for inclusive fashion and design collective, it seemed to fit. Um, until it didn't. Over the past few years, I have developed a profound distaste. Oh, I realize I haven't been using my slides. So disability is designed. So I've, I've developed a profound uh, distaste for what I call euphemistic design terms. 
the word, the word inclusion and inclusive design, it doesn't mean what I had intended it to mean. It doesn't mean variety. Inclusive has become a way to speak around disability without ever saying the word, because nobody ever wants to say the word disability. My experience of inclusive design is one where myself and my disabled peers are actually excluded from the design process. Inclusive design never credits us for our contributions. The same can be said of adaptive and universal and human-centered design. My question to you is, is when is it that you're actually saying these things and when is it that you're just avoiding saying the word disability? People are so uncomfortable saying the word disability that they trend toward euphemisms such as special needs, which, my, which is why my friend Lawrence Carter Long created, oh, I'm still forgetting the slides, let's see. Which is why my friend Lawrence Carter Long created the Say the Word campaign. Because every time somebody talks around the word disability, it increases the stigma of an identity that we are so proud of. And Lawrence makes a really interesting point, which is everybody thinks that the, the, the prefix dis and disability, that it means un. But what if it actually means apart from or separate from? I actually like this because to me it says that, that disability has actually never been about ability or a perceived lack thereof. I have found that telling our histories helps people understand what disability is. Um, and so I've actually become uh, an amateur historian to help my friend Lawrence with his Say the Word campaign. Another uh, euphemism is differently abled. Um, it was something I decided I wanted to figure out where it came from. Uh, it's a phrase that is often used by parents mostly and teachers to describe children. They say, no, you're not disabled, you're differently abled. So I took my search to the New York Public Library and I found the first printed usage of uh, differently abled in a 1980 uh, issue of a radical feminist publication called Off Our Backs. Uh, it was describing a workshop at an event called the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which is called Mishfest for short. Uh, and it featured a, uh, let's see if I have it here, it featured a differently abled women and singles ga uh, gathering for lesbians. I then went to, it's actually called the Lesbian Her Story Archives, it's in Brooklyn, New York, and I saw that the term was increasingly being used in these Mishfest event guides uh, up through 1984 when, in 1985, um, in volume 51 of the Science Teacher by the National Science Teachers Association of America, you find that uh, it was used to describe students. So what I'm in the process of now and what I've started to realize is, is that this science teacher was actually a lesbian. <laughs> I like her. <laughs> Anyway, so things devolved, and in 1985, uh, the Democratic National Convention claimed to coin the word differently abled in a, quote, valiant effort to find a kinder term than handicapped, which the National Review, which is the most con conservative rag at the time, then dismissed as uh, semantic gobbledygook. Um, it's funny, I never thought I'd agree with the National Review, uh, but I do. But I was like, this can't be real. So I reached out to this Mishfest historian. She was uh, hilarious. She's an ASL interpreter, um, you know, uh, super gay, anyway. So <laughs> what I learned is, is that Mishfest, it was an annual event. It ran up until I think 2015. Uh, and it attracted thousands of women from all over the world. Um, and the atmosphere was oftentimes really erotic. She, in our first conversation, she told me about how she broke her tooth on a chocolate slip and slide. Um, <laughs> but it also attracted many disabled women due to an early commitment to accessibility. And so to these differently abled women of Mishfest, uh, it didn't just mean disabled, it meant disabled and empowered, uh, disabled and, and sexual, disabled and free. Uh, the, the differently abled women of Mishfest are no longer with us today, which means, as so often the case, uh, our history is lost to time, but it has really been an honor of mine to be able to piece together enough of this to let you know what you're saying when you call a child differently abled.
Um, so uh, Amy Hamray is an author of a book called Building Access. And she says, uh, disabled people have used their embedded knowledge to, or embodied knowledge in self-directed, people have used their embodied knowledge in self-directed uh, design practices not only to hack their everyday environments, but also to use design as an act of political protest. And she's right. Uh, we disabled people, we are the original life hackers. We spend our lives cultivating an intuitive creativity because we are forced to navigate a world that's not built for our bodies. And our, our innovations have been known to change the world. Who here uses finger works? Yeah? Got And T, of course T does. Um, so. Back in 1998, there was a, a man, his name was Wayne Westerman, uh, and he was struggling with some carpal tunnel and some tendinitis. And so he decided to create a technology that would allow him to continue working. And he created Fingerworks. And then in 2005, Steve Jobs bought that technology. It's the iPhone touchscreen. Who uses Fingerworks? <laughs> um, so in, there's another story too, which is in 1655, a Nuremberg watchmaker and paraplegic named Stephen Farfler decided he wanted to make uh, what ultimately became the first ever self-propelled wheelchair. He called it the Monumotive Carriage. And unbeknownst to him, it's actually the precursor for the modern day bicycle. So in the, I the stories don't end there. You, know, you, can, you can thank us for cereal and audiobooks and the electric toothbrush and cruise control and, and curb cuts. It, the, the list is endless. And yet brands uh, have begun to create products for us without consulting us. Last year, three global brands debuted what they called adaptive clothing lines, and not a single one of these brands hired a single disabled person to consult. Tommy Hilfiger claims that he was the first person to create uh, an adaptive clothing line, but he wasn't. Um, and I know this because apparently I'm an amateur historian. The first person to create an adaptive clothing line was Helen Cookman, a disabled woman who wrote a how-to book called Functional Fashions for the Physically Handicapped in 1958. I've been trying to locate her archives, which I'm convinced exists somewhere in their entirety, simply because I haven't found a piece of anything she's created anywhere, so they, I feel that they must be somewhere. And I've had uh, the most wonderful time communicating with her grandsons, who are also trying to help me locate these archives. Um, and it's been really interesting to see what sort of comes of these conversations. For instance, I got this, oh, that's the book. I got this email from her grandson, Rod, um, and it said, Liz, I tried to find uh, photos and stuff of her collection, and I now know that they're somewhere, but I found this correspondence to my dad from Helen and realized it was actually from Helen Keller. <laughs> we'll keep looking. Uh, please stay in touch. Regards, Rod. And so it, it was just this highly sort of um, powerful family, and they had a lot of really interesting friends. And, and so it, Helen's story is definitely one that I'm so eager to tell. Uh, she created an organization called the Clothing Research and Development Foundation. Uh, she had the support of NYU to create it. And through it, she collaborated with brands such as Sears and Lacoste and Levi's. And in my search, I actually reached out to Levi's resident historian who found this. Um, it's, just, it's just a letter. Um, I'm, I'm hoping they'll do more digging into their archives. But I'm actually trying to convince them to construct a replica because um, just in case Helen's archives rem remain unfound. And, and it's important because as I understand the scope of our unwritten history, I realize it was actually never our bodies that disabled us. It was everything else. Uncovering our histories allows me to frame accurate questions such as why aren't disabled people entering design fields. We are intuitively creative and our ingenuity has been known to change the world. You would think that design would be an obvious career choice for, dis for disabled people. But then again, we've never gotten any credit for our contributions. It makes me think about, um, oh, that's some, 
sorry. It makes me think about OXO kitchen products. I don't know if OXO is, um, is sort of prevalent here as it is in the United States, but they're these kitchen products. They're made of these deliciously tactile and gummy hand uh, grips, which are called good grips. Uh, and it was actually invented by a mentor of mine. His name is Tucker Veermeister. Um, I call him the world's most industrial designer because I love him. And uh, he also happens to have the world's largest toothpaste co collection. <laughs> Um, anyway, when you go to, let's see, I'm going to go back this way. So when you go back, when you go to the OXA website, uh, you're greeted with a story that says, Sam Farber saw that his wife was having a hard time peeling a carrot. And so he decided he was going to make an easier pe uh, uh, peeler for her to use. Uh, so this one day, I decided to ask Tucker about Sam's wife, Betsy. I wanted to know who was this woman who had arthritis and was having a hard time peeling a carrot. And, and Tucker said to me, he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, do you know she was a designer? She was around all the time. I was like, no, like, I didn't know she was a designer. And the more I started thinking about it, I realized I don't know of a single designer who would inspirationally allow their spouse to just make something for them. So I picked up the phone and I called her, and the first thing she said to me was, I'm going to go down in history as being Sam's lowly crippled wife, when in reality it was my idea in the first place. <laughs> OXO has been heralded as the universal example of universal design for decades. But I've long struggled with this concept of universal design. I don't know if you remember in the beginning, I was saying design is a by or, uh, disability is a byproduct of industrialization. Uh, it was these expectations of, of normal and mass that uh, created disability in the first place. And so when the 1970s rolled around and designed, decided for the first time, we're going to address this issue, we're going to address this thing that was created by the expectation of normal and mass through normal and mass in the form of universality, um, it just it seems like a, a complete disconnect. It makes me wonder, wh what are, like how are we thinking about these things? Um, Universal design says a solution made for a disabled, uh, when you make a solution for a disabled person, it says everybody benefits, but what disabled people know is, is that there's always an exception. And so it teaches me our, our experiences, they're not universal. We're not all half bumbling through Sydney, looking the wrong way before jaywalking with a purple cane. We don't all get to be Stephen, Stephen Hawking, articulating our understanding of the universe through voice recognition software, um, but we can relate. It was Hawking who said, uh, that's Tucker. That's not Haw that's not Stephen Hawking at all. Um, it was it was uh, Stephen Hawking who said time and space are finite in extent, but they don't have any boundary or edge. And I can't help but wonder: was he talking about the universe or was he talking about disability? It taught me that while our designs aren't universal, they're expansive. They expand our understanding. They expand what is possible, and they expand what we have the freedom to pursue. And when you look back at history, what you realize is, is that we have many of the greatest thinkers, theorists, creative people, artists of all time, right? We have Frida Kahlo, we have Beethoven, we have Stevie Wonder, we have Helen Keller. I mean, even last week I learned Hannah Gadsby is autistic. Our contributions are not a coincidence. Um, we reside on the periphery, and because of that, we are able to feel and navigate things uh, articulately that an average person can't quite put their, their finger on. There is much value in being an outlier. And it's this very reason that I created with, as in design with disability. If you were to go onto Google right now and search the term design for disability, you'll see that it yields more than twice as many search results as disability design. And it's this idea that we're recipients has embedded itself into our language. 
So through the WITH Fellowship, um, what happens is, is I'm partnering creative disabled people who may not actually see themselves as designers with top design spaces. And the goal is, is to start creating pathways into design for disabled people. And it's really, you can look at it two ways. It, it speaks both to disabled people and it speaks also to design corporations. It tells disabled people that our, our contributions, contributions are valuable and it tells design organizations that our contributions are valuable. The response has been astounding. I just announced the first cohort a couple days ago. It's starting next week in New York City, um, and then we're expanding to San Francisco in early 2019, and then in five cities uh, later in 2019. After my first call with Betsy Farber, designer of OXO Kitchen Products, she sent me an email. She had been reading a book. I'm really bad at this today. <laughs> uh, so she'd been reading a book by Lewis Thomas called The Medusa and the Snail, and she said this one particular quote really resonated and she felt that she needed to share, and it was this. Biology needs a better word than error for the driving force in evolution, or maybe error will do after all. When you realize, when you remember, it came from the old wor uh, root meaning uh, to wander about looking for something. And I think that's what it comes down to, is, is we've all been pressured to fix what's wrong, when in reality it's actually our curity, curiosity that sheds light on, on, on what's right. So thank you. I'll leave it there. Yay. Oh. Um, hello. Hello. Hello, Liz. Hello, Fenella. <laughs> We've been calling each other by our other names. Yeah, so hello, I was, Fenella. Actu I was actually right. I had it wrong for a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My name's Liz, just in case you wanted to know. My name's Fenella. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Fenella. Nice to meet you, Liz. Yeah, good, good. Um, I want to start off with, um, with this, because we were talking about this just before, Liz. The you clearly say disabled person yeah. in your talk. Uh, and yet the other, of course, terms that we use is people with the disability or people with disability. Can you talk to me about the distinction between the two for you? Yes, so I, um, I used to identify as a person with disability, meaning person first language, um, until Trump got elected. And then I, I shifted uh, with many members of the disability community. Um, and the reason being is, is that what we found is that our power actually comes not from being an individual, but there's power in numbers. And so by putting disabled people first, uh, it's me putting the community before I put myself. Um, and I see my, myself as, a, as participating in a role in a much larger process of, of building cultural and political capital um, amongst uh, disabled people. Mm. Why is language so important to you? And in particular, person with a disability, people with disability yeah. person, how I communicate, how we communicate as well. What should we be talking about or thinking about? It's funny, I, it, I wish language wasn't important. It's, it's, um, I think it's been this sort of tension in the disability community for ages. Um, I think we all want to get away from it and we always think like, you know, it was disabled person, that was person with disability and now it's disabled person again. Um, and it, it's, it's inescapable. I, I see how much uh, language contributes to um, much of the work that I'm doing, just the language that's used in design. Um, and so while I'd rather not focus on it, you're sort of forced to. Yeah, you kind of have to, don't you? There's, yeah. no, there's no way around it. Yeah. Um, can we talk a bit more about how you became politicized? I know you, you, you spoke about it during your talk, which was fantastic, by the way. Gra Thank fantastic, you. Liz. Um, how, how you became politicized, the, 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 the birth of the disabled list, and obviously what you're doing now with the fellowships with, with yeah. which I like saying, it's lots with of fun. But tell me a bit about what, what other than the moment when you knew you, 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 when you fell out of the bed and had to get a Diet Coke, like what yeah. was it that drove you to, to start to, to be someone that was an agitator, I guess? Yeah, I actually, I think it was two things, and it's interesting. So there's, there's two models of disability. There's the social model, which states, uh, or there's the medical model, which derived from industrialization, and it states we are disabled by our bodies. And then there's the social model, which I ascribe to, uh, that states we are disabled, uh, not by our bodies, but by the world around us. And so 
Well, because I'm social model, I choose not to speak about my diagnosis. It's something that I make a conscious decision to do. But there are two very important things that um, happened to me in the process of trying to um, secure a diagnosis. And the first was is that I said is that I had lost the ability to choose. And the second was, and this is the case for many women that enter the medical system, is that I was not believed. I was told I was faking it, and it actually took me uh, over a year to finally find a doctor to, to do the test that I needed to actually get my diagnosis. And so I think in me, everything that drives me to do what I do is that I, I, I expect in my life that I will be believed, and that um, and I, I have every sort of basic expectation that there should be choice. And so it, I, th I do think that there was something through the, the diagnosis process that, that kind of broke me and, um, and now is, has driven this sort of um, intense this uh, life yeah this, this endless life yeah it's like it's like you hit it's like before you tweet just hit the caps lock button and then write and you'll find that's what I sound like yeah uh, actually we're talking about this before Liz is that uh, the caps lock is probably a good way of describing it and, and I use the word agitator before yeah. I, it's the fu in, in all of us it's to yeah. say I want to do something I can do something I have the voice and the agency to do something as well yeah that that tell me about that how that works for you um I mean it's it's an incredibly painful experience I find um it's interesting. So in my work, the thing that I found that I, I, I call myself like sort of like the, the little sibling to the academics because my work is all based in theory. And then what I'm trying to do is really bring their ideas to life. And so I go out in the world and I cause trouble with it and I run back to them and I'm like, help. Um, but it's, it's actually really sort of incredibly, incredibly painful. I was in a, a panel um, just a little bit ago and um, I, sort of two things were I brought up. The first was that I, before I was here in Sydney, I was in San Francisco, and I was asked to do um, a talk about disability design. Um, and the through line of this 45-minute talk that I had spent o over a month preparing for was this, I was making fun of a company that had gotten something wrong. And I made the mistake of, um, an hour before the talk, I made the mistake of uh, checking the app to see who was in the audience. And th I saw that there were the six lead designers of that company were in the audience. <laughs> and so I like, I, like oh go shit. I go upstairs <laughs> to my hotel room and I like call my mom and I'm like, I can't do it. And she's like, you have to. Um, <laughs> and uh, she, was, she said, she's like, turn on some meditation music. I'm like, I don't listen to meditation music. <laughs> but I like Googled it and I found, I found meditation music and I had it like my phone on my chest. I was like laying in bed. I was like, okay, you can do this, you can do this. But I, I went downstairs and um, I gave the talk and afterward the designers came up and they said touche and they invited me um, into, uh, to come speak with them. And, and so I think it was sort of prevalent today because I was asked to participate in a panel that was uh, about how to save the world. And um, the thing that I, I ended up scrapping my entire talk uh, yesterday because I realized that um, there's something happening in the lobby right now that is um, uh, very troublesome to the disability community. And it's, um, it's uh, a person is, is using 15,000 straws to celebrate uh, uh, the Sydney Opera House's adoption of the straw ban. Um, but the thing is, is that straws are a matter of life and death for disabled people. And so um, I shifted my entire talk and I had to instead um, push the Sydney Opera House who has been so inclusive and so um, generous with me. And so it's, it's very painful. You, you never know, you know, it's, it, I, I, I feel like I do have a true north and I, I never stray from it, but it does, it does make people always skeptical, skeptical of you during the process. And as a result, the Opera House has uh, thought about what you said, is that right? I don't know. Yeah, well. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. There's always yeah. an exception. You never yeah. know if it's going to happen as yeah. well. Um, what was the company that you were taking the mickey out of um, in that talk? It's funny because I, the reason I don't say the name is because there's uh, two of them. There's one in the United States and there's one in Target, or in, in, uh, in Sydney they're different it's target okay. and so what happened was is they had made a shirt that said uh, be thankful um, and I I have 
uh, it's, it's, I question everything. So, um, <laughs> good, we <yeah>. need you. <laughs> so, there is this, there's a few different approaches to design. So, people tend to use universal design. Yeah. Um, but the other type of design that really kind of uh, says that it, it's sort of taking on disability is this approach. It's called design thinking. Do you guys know what design thinking is? So give, us a, give us a quick wrap up with it. Yeah. It was a process that was created initially in the 1960s, and it was by basically white men that had no equals. They were designers at the top of their, promotion, uh, their profession. They were associated with the most powerful institutions in the world, and um, they made products that um, filled the lives of millions of people all over the world. And what they realized is, is that design isn't reaching everybody, and so they created a, um, a method of design that would fill in the gaps, and it was entirely framed around empathy. And so there's five steps to the design thinking process. And so, um, and it's viewed as this sort of really inspirational, kind of empathetic, like, you know, when something comes out of design thinking, everybody says like, oh, like, you know, lovely. Um, so. Pat, pat on the back type of thing? Yeah, yeah. a bit. Yeah. And so um, I started looking at it from the user's perspective. And so the first step of design thinking is, is you cultivate empathy. But what I have found is, is that disabled people were the original life hackers. And so those designers that are coming in and, and, and are interviewing and observing us, what they're actually doing is, is they're generating our life hacks and our ideas. And they're using those then to sort of rebrand them and sell them back to us as like this inspirational do-good. So then you move to the second step of, de of design thinking, and it's defining the problem. And the thing is, is because we're not invited to the table, it's oftentimes us that gets defined as the problem. It becomes yeah. about what we can or can't do versus how something does or doesn't work for us. And so when you have our insights gleaned and us de defined as the problem, you then enter this process of ideation, prototyping, and testing, which I argue leads to the sixth step of design thinking, which I call design thanking, because there's every expectation that we must be grateful for that, which has been done for us. Mm, okay, so thank you so much. You've helped us out so much, yeah. even though it was our idea in the first place. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. cultural appropriation in, yeah, all, it's in like all, all the possible Betsy, ways. Betsy Farber. Yeah, exactly. Helen Cookman. I, great, great examples yeah. as well. And one of those companies that ha is a huge proponent of design thinking, of course, being IDEO, the, yeah. the global design firm. Yeah. And you were telling me a story about how they <laughs> created a, a game or something like that, yeah. which is a perfect example of, well, again, ignoring and, and owning other yeah. people's ideas, almost. It's a bit of a long story. So it actually started about a year and a half ago when somebody said, did you know IDEO is um, having a, uh, a sort of a, an online sort of thing that you could apply to? I don't know if it was a competition, but basically the premise was is that you can solve Basically, you can solve, dis uh, uh, come up with a design solution for disability in third world countries. And I was just horrified because what I realized is, is that disability is a Western construct. It doesn't exist in these countries. And so what they're doing is, is they're going into these countries, they're creating the problem, and then they're solving it. Yeah. Like, congratulations, <laughs> Without right? once asking like, if they need job. it. Yeah. yeah, and so I remember at the time, there was like, there was one day left to apply. And so like, I just basically like applied, like <laughs> it's this big FU, like, you guys are doing this terribly, like da 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 da. Like nothing happened. And anyway, so uh, like three months ago, they invite me in. Um, they, they had said that they were interested in the WITH Fellowship um, and they asked if I would come in. And I was like, yes, I'll come in. I have things to tell you. And so <laughs> I, I go in and what I actually found out was that they weren't actually so much interested in the WITH Fellowship is that they wanted, uh, to get my opinion on a technology they had created. And I was frustrated because I felt I had come in under sort of false pretenses. Um, but they finally convinced me and I said, okay, if you, you know, show me this technology. And it was a technology that was intended to get disabled people, uh, people hired. And so my question to them was, is did you hire any dis disabled people to create this technology that's intended to get disabled people hired? <laughs> and they were like, well, <laughs> no. <laughs> and so then things really 
devolved uh, profoundly. And, and so um, a couple weeks goes by, and um, a few other things happened, but what I ultimately saw is, is um, there was a disability employment uh, awareness event, and they posted on Twitter that they'd made this uh, card game that is intended to eliminate bias when you're designing for disability. But when you actually look at the card game, it's intended for design organizations that are interested in designing for disabled people without actually talking to disabled people. Okay. And mm. so I don't know about bias, about, yeah. What to do there. Yeah. Um, and is there an end to that? Is, is IDEO going to, have they listened to you? Or uh, your frustrations uh, that you were presented with them? Yeah, I mean, I write them really funny emails. Great. Like, <laughs> I'm like, you know. <laughs> and so All I in caps lock, I hope. Uh, yeah. I've actually, it's, yeah, it's more stream of thought at this point. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I hope, I hope that they'll, they'll shift, but it's, um, it's, it's frustrating. Um, but how can we get to that shift? Because uh, this is eye-opening for a lot of people, this yeah. idea that, you know, because we, we have all those euphemisms that you talk about, human-centered design, inclusive design, uh, all the multitude of other, other terms that we use. How can we get to that point where we do start to design with yeah. and not for, to, to include and not to be exclusive, et cetera? What needs to happen? How can this happen? Yeah, well, I think it actually comes down to a, a simple shift of, of charitable thinking. And I think this is the case with IDEO and with, universal design and with design thinking is is that it is actually very charitable um, and so when you go back to industrialization and you see that you know disabled people were placed in institutions they needed a means for survival and thus um, the adoption of charity for disabled people um, and so it's interesting so what happened in the early 1900s is you would have oftentimes um, parents of, of impaired children who um, would decide, okay, we want to, uh, you know, we're, we're very sad that our child is born this way. We want to we find a cure. Um, and so they would create a charity and they would raise money for a cure. But what disabled people know is, is that nothing's ever actually been cured. Um, and so it's, it's an incredible long game that we still haven't even proven is possible. And so what happens is, is these organizations then turn to um, awareness campaigns. Um, but the whole thing is, is a bit horrifying because they have to position our bodies as a tragedy to raise money and then they make people aware of us all while sort of fundraising to ultimately eliminate us. And so there's this big sort of conflict in how money is used you know, around disabled people. And when you go and you look at a lot of these uh, oftentimes parent-created charities which are trying to do good work, what you find is, is that there's no disabled people involved in leadership positions on the board. You know, and it, you, can, it's, it's, you can see it everywhere over and over and they're all all of them are created and intended to fix us. Mm. Um, the the, the well-meanings, I call yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's look, I understand well-meaning. Like I, I have a dog that I would uh, like do anything for. Um, he's my son, and I, I absolutely understand that instinct. But at a certain point, um, society needs to shift who they view as experts and realize it's actually not the charities, it's the people. Mm. Um, and so it's it's a matter of, and I, I sort of oftentimes joke that disabled people have kind of entered the rebellious teenage years, and we're saying no, like, let us have a say. Um, but it's it's it takes time, mm. and, and taking time means again. And you s you use these words, changing the habits of organisations, changing the, the yeah. way the infrastructure is set up in the very first place. Um, and I, I want to work out how we can do that. And I know yeah. that your fellowship is one is yeah. is one of those pathways. So yeah. talk us through more how how we can actually find a way to change those habits of, of yeah. the organisations we work with. Yeah, and so you know, for me, it, designing with disability is is intended to foster this process. But uh, the other thing that I've done is I've started creating a list of creative disabled people that are available to consult because oftentimes people don't know who is the right disabled person, right? And, um, and you know, is, am I turning to the right person? How do you know what is right? 
Um, and, and so everybody's got a different approach and a practice, and it's all subjective, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like yeah. even within even within the disability community, you have people that are medical model, you have people that are social model, you have people that are you know a person with disability, you have a disabled person, and so. And I think that's sort of the thing is is there's always been this expectation in disability that there's only one way, right? Um, I think that's sort of where the idea of compliance stemmed from. Is okay, well, you know, somebody needs something, uh, so we're going to make this thing compliant, and that's how things must be done. Um, but when in reality, the thing I'm advocating for is choice. And so realizing there isn't just one way and there is room for creative solutions. Can you give us an example of how, how that's worked for you? So let's, I mean, there's a multitude of examples, I'm sure, but what's, yeah. what's one example where working with has actually shown to be proven to be quite successful? Yeah, so I actually, I met uh, T. Uglos in the, the front row. I met her over a year ago at Google Creative Lab. They'd invited me in um, to do a, a presentation um, before a, a hackathon that they were doing. And the, the premise of the hackathon was is they were designing for uh, underprivileged communities. And so I had sort of correctly surmised um, beforehand um, that there were not going to be any representatives of these communities that were they were going to be designing for. So I wrote this entire talk about designing with. And it was hilarious. Like right before I give the talk, I hear this voice from the middle of the audience. And it was like every, it, it, the, vo the voice said, everybody remember you are not designing for, you're designing with. And I was like, why am I even here? <laughs> um, and so I asked, I was like, who was that? And it was, it was T. But it was actually really powerful. I gave my talk, and afterward, um, everybody divided up in groups. And it wasn't perfect, but what they did was is they reached out to people in their lives who um, had um, uh, created um, or that had an expertise in that area. Um, and at the end of the day, there was ultimately this um, one thing, and I, it, didn't, it didn't actually strike me as particularly interesting at the time, but there was one group that had created uh, technology around Morse code because there are thousands of people all over the world that communicate through Morse code. Um, and the interesting thing was, is six months later, I was watching the Google, the I.O. keynote, and it wasn't even 10 minutes in when the CEO on the, the, the keynote stage at this event introduces somebody named Tanya Finlayson, and she's a disabled developer who had spent her whole life trying to build a technology around Morse code. And so what happened with Google was, is they met a disabled person who introduced them to disabled people, and then those disabled people introduced them to other disabled people. And ultimately what happened was, is this trend developed and everybody said, Google Creative Lab talked to Tanya, and so that's what they did. They talked to Tanya, and what they found is that they ended up creating a much more powerful um, technology than what they could have created in the first place simply because they needed her expertise. But more than that, when they rolled out this technology, they did two really important things. The first was, is in the video, they thanked her. They said, thank you, Tanya. It wasn't that they had done something for her. It was that they had thanked her. Acknowledgement. And yes. yes, and the second thing was, is um, there, it, 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 the first time I saw it was in a tweet, and it said, Tanya has taught us. And so Tanya was a teacher. And um, it's interesting, and we were talking about this before. I, I think the question you were originally going to frame to me is, is like, what's a brand that's getting it right? And I am never comfortable saying that there's one brand that gets something right, because if I say there's a right way to do things, then that reinforces compliance. But I can say that there's these interesting things. And the fact that Tanya was a teacher and the fact that Tanya was thanked, I think, were very, very interesting to me. Mm. Okay, so brand, we can't obviously have a brand that's doing it right because that means that's assuming everything is going to be right. Yeah. Um, brands that are doing it to a degree but not necessarily getting it yeah. um, and where you find you're conflicted by it. And one of those is the shoe. Are you telling me oh, about Zappos? It's, it's something called Zappos. Has anybody yeah. heard of Zappos here? Okay, I just don't buy enough shoes then, clearly. Um, what happened with the Zappos? So they, uh, they were one of the three companies that created an adaptive clothing line. Um, and when, when they rolled it out, uh, there was this, this um, 
phrase on the website that said, um, disabled people are no longer in institutions, they're out living among us, they follow trends such as music and social media and fashion, they want and deserve to live <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> and while like the institutions part like really grabbed my attention, it was the fact that they said they, that really got me. And yeah. so I actually, um, I pushed the caps lock button <laughs> and I it was only invented for this purpose it's, yeah. it's mine just a generally okay. pissed off <laughs> hey T do you think they can rename it the Liz button <laughs> they can and so um, I, I pushed the caps lock button and I wrote Zappos <laughs> and I somehow got on the phone um, with the guy that created it and um, and he told me that there were no disabled people included and so I was just like that conversation didn't last very long right Right, so that, it, that not one person, I no with all four type of thing, yeah, and no conversation. Yeah, mm. no, it was, no. it was. Um, I mean, why would you talk to somebody that escaped an institution? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. If you have questions for Liz, by the way, we are about to go to Q and A. So start, start thinking of your questions, um, and I'm, I know, I know you want to answer them all. I'm all really of them. I'm all uh, of them. Um, I, I have, however, one a couple more questions. Um, but, but firstly, um, we were talking about the, the the symbol, the accessible icon symbol of the yeah. wheelchair that we all know really well. Yeah. Uh, and as an amateur historian, you've yeah. been talking to another historian who yeah. is a real historian. Uh, she's a real one. Oh, for real. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. So we so believe she's her. One she's better. Yeah. She's one of the <laughs> so she's one of the academics who, are in my life, like I just sort of hope to like yeah. make proud. So yeah, cool. Um, well, tell me, t what were you saying? What has she uncovered here with this, yeah. this this symbol? Yeah. So she wrote a book called Design access and it's about the history of the accessible icon and she actually noticed this really interesting thing and I, I think it, it applies to many aspects of, of disability and what she started noticing is is I don't know if you've seen the the new icon where instead of having a wheelchair user that leans back they're leaning forward in a more active pose and so on the campus that she worked the thing that she realized was is that as they were rolling out this m more inspirational accessible icon and oh her name is Elizabeth Guffey um, and so as they were rolling out this more accessible icon at the same time they were rolling back accessible features on the campus and so it oftentimes these things that are done for us actually that are done inspirationally provide cover for our exclusion mm. okay so rolled it back that's not great yeah no like this way yeah definitely definitely down yeah um, okay so thank you Liz uh, more questions We've got well, lots of time, so thank you. There's a question up the back. Um, hi, so my hi. name is Grace. Um, my background is actually in science, so it's very different to design. Um, but one of the things that I've come across in my university career is uh, that you get, and this is more from a medical model, you get people researching, obviously, you know, different illnesses and diseases and disabilities. Um, but very few of the people I've actually come across in those fields have those disabilities. And of course, one of the things that interests me as a potential research student is going into researching fields that affect me. Yeah. And I was wondering if you thought that we would see a shift in uh, the way like research is performed, but also like the flow and effects into design as you get more people involved in those areas. Yeah, I, I, clear, I see it as a pipeline issue and actually, the reason I created WITH was it's actually a first step to something else. And that started because um, because I, I, I don't have a formal design education. I've, I've been fortunate enough to cobble it together with some incredible design minds. Um, and I also don't think that I think in a way that would have allowed me to thrive in a design environment. But And I was talking to my friend, uh, her name is Andrea Levant. She's a wheelchair user. She has this big job in DC. And uh, we were talking and the thing, I, I was talking about telling her about my perspective and she was saying to me that 
back when she was going, deciding where she wanted to go to school, uh, she wanted to go to school for fashion, only there's no accessible design labs anywhere, I don't, I don't know about Australia, but anywhere in the United States. And so uh, ultimately she had to, she realized she couldn't go to design school, not because uh, there was anything wrong with her, but because the, there was no space made for her. Mm. Um, and uh, she has this great job, you know, she's um, you know, doing really good work, but at night she still goes home and sketches. Right, and so for me, the I what I'm trying to do is sort of build kind of capital and show um, what happens when you get disabled people into design spaces, so that we can start to get institutions to create space for them, so that we are welcome in those environments. And and I'm doing it, you know, specifically in design, but I mean the same is very true for science. I mean, a big question for disabled people is, is why don't doctors ever look like us? So um, you know, and I, I imagine if I had a doctor that looked like me, I probably wouldn't have gone through what I went through. So I, I know exactly what you mean, and you know, hopefully we get there. Mm. Thank you. Um, just here. Hi. Um, thank you very much for everything that you've been um, saying. It's really interesting, especially some of the things you said about language and really um, reframing a lot of what we, how way we talk about disability. Yeah. Um, I, the one thing that I am really curious to hear you speak a bit more on, because I'm not sure I totally agree with it, is yeah. the the idea that disability is a Western construct. Yeah. Um, through my, I, you know, I had a quite a lot of experience in my master's and PhD with um, working with disability in developing countries, and my experience was that there's certainly um, perception and treatment of people with disability that are uh, that would certainly go against that idea that that it's a Western thing and that's something that we're importing into into these environments. Yeah, that's just society's disabling people in a different way than perhaps is happening in Western countries. So I just want to get your opinion on and, and kind of like where that's coming from. Yeah, and again, it's it's Westernism. It's it's clearly and it's a it's a global phenomenon, right? Like it's um, our ideals have, have sort of imbued themselves all over the world, but because I look at, again, disability is a, I, I come from the framework that disability is designed. It is created, as a th it is not the way that, um, people. Like, oftentimes when I'm having a conversation with somebody, they think that I'm talking about my body. And I realize that, they don't realize that I'm not talking about my body, I'm talking about everything else. Um, and the things that we experience, um, I think, like when you look at sort of the way that disability is treated, it started out before industrialization. It wasn't great, right? Like nothing was ever perfect, and oftentimes disabled people were sort of seen as humorous. Uh, industrialization rolled around, and we were viewed with pity. And now um, it's evolved into something much uh, more complex and more troublesome, which is we're viewed as inspiration. And um, and so you know, it, these are things that were created through. Um, uh, these expectations that bodies could perform a certain way, and and they they have rubbed off like in countries all over the world. But to um, to go into Africa and s and tell a disabled person that they're inspirational, um, that's not that's not how like uh, oftentimes like especially in Asia people view it religiously like it's not and so it's it's those various things. Mm. I don't I think that was a terrible answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great it's a really good question. Um, but I think what it boils down to is, is um, where is the messaging coming from? Mm. Can you talk a bit more about the inspiration, the politics behind inspiration? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Like, it's been five or six years since Stella spoke uh, uh, here. Uh, Stella, uh, she, Stella Young created a, a TED Talk. That, uh, it, it was, I'm not your inspiration, very, thank you very much. And it was about this, sort of the birth of um, inspiration porn. Um, and it's, it's this expectation that um, we're going to overcome, but we don't, right? We exist. Mm. Um, and 
I often tell the story of, it's interesting, so like when you look in media and you, you think like, you see a disabled person, if you ask yourself like, who is this for? Is it for the disabled person or is it for everybody else? And um, almost always it's for everybody else. Uh, in 2016 for the Paralympic Games in Rio, BMW made a set of uh, four chairs. They had brought in uh, a top NASA scientist uh, to create these, these unbelievable chairs and the, the performers ended up doing really well. Um, and afterward, I had the chance to ask them if they were going to take what they had learned from this process and if they were going to make wheelchairs for everyday users. Um, and their answer was just no. No. Because um, they, they look good making the chairs for the other reason, the yeah, other purpose, but not for everyday use. Yeah. And mm. so, but like, you see it, you see it sort of time and again. Um, and it's just, it's, um, it's frustrating. Mm. Certainly is. Any more questions? Thank you. At the back and then just in front afterwards. Hi. I just wanted to ask, uh, with um, design thinking and human-centred design, they're very yeah. prevalent these days. Yeah. Were you saying there that uh, those concepts are fundamentally broken or just being misused? I think... Um, I don't think anything is fundamentally broken. Um, I think that it is worth looking at it from um, the user's perspective. Um, and I think it's, it, it is the case with so much of this, what are the long-term implications? Um, and so I ask myself, well, what happens to design thinking if um, you, know, you decide before, before you start the design thinking process, you actually consider who is going to be invited into the process? Um, it's, it's my struggle right now is, is I find this constant tension of things it's, it's things that feel a certain way versus things that do a certain thing. And we have convinced ourselves that things that feel a certain way are doing a certain thing. And I think this is much of the byproduct of design thinking, um, is that we're not actually ever creating a, a solution, but we're, we're telling ourselves that because it feels like it, was, it, it feels good, that that feeling good is the, the achievable solution. I, I'm having a, bad, a hard time explaining that. Um, and I think it's, just, it, it's for me, it's, it's that the, the products that come out of these fields, they're, they're, they're seen as inspirational. They're not seen as valid solutions. Um, but I also look a lot in the, the tech industry. And um, I remember I gave this talk a few years back, and it was a, it was a, diversity, a series of diversity panels. And uh, these black men went on stage before me, and they, they said, while tech isn't moving fast enough, um, they are bringing in more black people, and so very slowly tech is becoming diversified. And then um, afterward, a group of lesbians went on stage, um, and they said the same thing. Like you know, like while it's not happening fast enough, tech is bringing more uh, lesbians in, and now tech is becoming diversified. And I come in and I say, yes, like you know, t it's not happening fast enough. But when uh, tech brings in disabled people, they're actually uh, bringing disabled people into. Uh, uh, projects that are aimed to fix them. And so are they actually diversifying or are they de-diversifying us through our supposed inclusion? Mm. And so it's about what is it that it's actually intended to do is the question for me. Thank you. Um, just a question just here and then you're next. Thank you. There was a question just in front. Thank I you. I find your comments on de-diversifying interesting. Thank you. Uh, my, my number one pal here. Hi. Uh, uh, acquired her new body the exact same day you did, which is interesting. What a coincidence. In 2012? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, on the same day. So one thing I've noticed says she's now, we'll use the words recovery. She's recovered. She's worked like a dog. She's yeah. trained like anyone else. She's been very inspirational. That's yeah. just lovely. But we're just getting our life back. Yeah. But what I found as she's gone back to the work world, yeah. things like that, I found that she's been ghettoized. 
In other words, the only work she has is in the disability sphere. The only, you know, she's not offered, you know, a large job anywhere else. She had yeah. 815 uh, job applications yeah. to finally get work again in, a, in the government in a disability sphere. But I'm wondering about that D, as you were saying, that uh, it's not, it's not uh, diversifying. It's, it's, yeah, it's a ghettoizing. It's like, yeah. put that over there, park it in there. We've got a place for you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Much like the Industrial Revolution. Can you yeah. comment about what you think about ghettoizing? Yeah. You, you're putting people in, into a box and you're over there. Thank God we forgot that handle. I guess I, I think a few different things. And I'm going to sort of work my way through the thoughts here because they're not fully formed yet, but I'm hoping through the... Um, so I am working with a designer. Um, she found her way into to New York City after graduating from Savannah College of Art and Design. She's legally blind, and she's one of the most amazing textile artists I've ever met in my life. And it's for her, it's a very intimate process. She holds the material close to her face, and she works very intricately. And um, she's started applying for jobs in, in New York, and, and, and what she's found is, is that she's having a hard time getting a job, not because she lacks talent. Everybody's saying she's the most talented textile designer uh, I've ever seen, um, but they're afraid of other things. How, we don't know how she sees color. We don't know how this, how that, how whatever. Um, and so for me, it's... This is, this is really the goal of my work is, is how do you start to create pathways and a design for these sort of specific um, people? And, and it's, it, it does seem sort of backwards because you're saying that she's sort of ghettoized by, um, by now sort of being like thrust into the disability space. But the way I see it is, is that we're only just now through this disability identity starting to build political and cultural power. Mm -hmm. And if we can start to create value in those ways that were different and get spaces to make room for us being disabled, um, then we're actually gonna be prime and key innovators. One of the interesting things about this designer was is she couldn't see to sew a pleat, so she invented a way to weave one. Right, like these are, these are the things that we do. And so I, I sort of, I guess the thing that I wanna say to you is, is that um, to, to be, I can understand how it feels sort of ghettoizing to be thrust into this other place, but I hope you know that sort of in the world, the work that myself and, and sort of my disabled peers are doing is really to, to sort of keep you in that place, but to allow you to thrive in that place because it, I think it's the future. Thank you. There's a question down at the front. Hello, Liz. I would love to see more disabled designers. I'd love to see more designers everywhere. I'm a permaculture designer. It's an Aussie thing. Permacu permanent design culture for a... What is permaculture? Permanent agriculture for a permanent okay. culture, making <laughs> ecosystems to make good things happen. I like good ecosystems. Yeah. <laughs> and I, my question to you is, what do you think parents and teachers can do to turn chil all children into designers of their own problems? Yeah. I believe all problems are design problems. Yeah. So I'm a designer. Well, I think, you know, I said, again, because n you. nothing is a certain way, right? Uh, so I said, you know, parents are sort of creating these charities. But at the same time, it is really parents that are, and I think it's finally happening more and more, where they're, stopped, they're no longer trying to fix their child. They're just allowing their child to exist. And then through that, the child can, can begin to thrive. Um, and so I think, f I think for me, it's, um, it, 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 it all does stem back to sort of the family and, and, and our perceptions of, um, of disability. So... I don't know that there's anything specific I would tell a parent to do other than to just sort of hear their child out and allow their child to sort of direct. I, I was more thinking of all people yeah. because I'm 
design's really natural for me. Yeah. And it's not for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's half natural for some people and they just need a little bit more help and they'd be great designers. For example, um, yesterday I was shopping at David Jones. There was a big yeah. line in the toilets. Yeah. And people were just standing there and I thought, this is not right. And I went in. Three toilets said, we, we don't work. There's a big barrier. Yeah. And I checked, just the doors didn't lock properly. Yeah. So I went under the barrier and I used the toilet and I told all the ladies, ladies, the toilet works fine if you don't barge in on each other. So that's just using design process, mm. inquiry, yeah. to get your needs met. Yeah. And so, yeah. So yeah. that's what I want to know. How can normal people be encouraged to be better designers of solving the daily, the doors don't work problems? Yeah. Thank I, you. I remember my my grandma. Um, she had arthritis, and she would use she would just go get a towel, and she would use that to open a can of soda. Right. Like that. Something as simple as that is a life hack. Um, and I think this idea of creativity and disability is a very new idea. Um, but it, I think there's very few things in, in life that I think are, are universal. And, I, and I, I'm scared to go so far as to say that creativity is universal. But I, I just I think that is the human condition. Mm -hmm. um, and so really start to see the ways in which we are. Um, it, it's like if, if you can sort of look closely at your life on any given day, how do you hold the toothbrush? Like, you know, how do you, like, you know, if you're like getting, if you're trying to do something and you're trying to put toothbrush, you know, toothpaste and you're trying to get the lid off, like, how do you navigate that? Like, that's a creative process. Mm. Um, and so I if you can boil it down to those very simple actions and see how thoughtful you are about it, I think is always very interesting. Thank you. There's a question just here at the front. Thanks for waiting. Hi, um, my name's Dan. I'm actually a trained fit artist who identifies actually having a disability yeah. of neurodiversity. Yeah. And it's a common kind of point of view question, all of the above. Where do you see basically people in term with disabilities? How can we be like, of recent times, I've actually been pushed in a sphere of being an advocate yeah. for fellow artists with a disability. Yeah. But also at the same time, I've actually I have a lot of people say uh, what you were talking about, the understanding, yeah. which is more like kind of, for better word, and I'm not trying to insult people when I say this, but pity, yeah. if you know what I mean. And like, I always make it kind of like, at present, I have my masters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can't get any work here in Australia, but I was just saying to my friend next to me here that I've been asked to actually apply to be an access um, department head of a theatre company in New York, whereas I can't even get a gig, you know, assistant directing yeah. in Australia. So how can one actually word what their disability without it being seen as what you were saying as a disability? Like yeah. I have seen neurodiversity because for such a long time I used to say learning disability yeah. and I don't know what it's like in America. Mm. But recently it's, that's been defined as being intellectually disabled and that's not bad or good, but yeah. that's not me. So I have um, one of the, the WITH fellows, she has um, Lyme disease and she was forced to drop out of school for close to a year uh, because she was so sick and she came back and she sort of finished her degree. And she was worried about entering um, the design world because she's worried about her energy. And um, the other thing was, is she's like, but I don't identify as disabled. She said, I don't look disabled um, and I don't feel comfortable saying I'm disabled and it, it sort of it feels less than et cetera et cetera so like that was a conversation we'd had before the with fellowship and then 
when the With Fellowship came along, she applied as a disabled person, and suddenly, now that there was opportunity for her, for the first time in her life, she was able to comfortably say, oh, this is what I am. And it's simply through creating that opportunity. And so for me, you know, it, we talk about original life hackers, like what's the thing that I'm trying to hack? Like, I'm trying to hack your situation. Like, that's the thing that I'm trying to shift. And it's, it's a hustle, right? Like, mm. and it's, it's you, you have to feel everybody out all the time, and it's frustrating, and do you out yourself, do you not? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, no, it, it actually it very much is. Uh, it raises so many unknowns, um, and and so for me, it's um, it's a matter of I say like really focusing on each situation as it happens and just sort of continue to hack at it. Like do it enough, and and I I just I'm so hopeful that you'll find your way through it. I wish I had a better answer for you, uh, other than like, yeah, I get it. Keep hacking. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I think we've got time for one more question. There was one here at the front. No. Uh, just here, thank you. Hi, Liz. Hi. Thank you for the wonderful talk. It's fascinating. No, thank you. Uh, so my name is Richard. I have a background in neuroscience and astronomy. Okay. And what I find fascinating is that there are all these cases of people with uh, disability or brain damage, and they suddenly have these other skills. Yeah. Um, and I think the mind is amazing in its ability to compensate. Yeah. And there are lots of examples like that in astronomy and neuroscience. I wonder if there are any websites that illustrate all the amazing innovations that came from people with disabilities. Um, not yet, but it you <laughs> you make me. That's again. That's it's, these are all things that we are just now building enough cultural capital to have mm. the means to do right. We're right. this is we're very early in this process, but it does what you. Like you, who like who you are in the world? This neuroscientist is very sort of thoughtful person. It makes me think of. Um, did you read Oliver Stuck, uh, Sacks, Sacks' his last book, River of Consciousness? Not the last one. So he had, and he had talked about this in other books too. But there's a chapter called Scotoma, and in Scotoma, what he talks about is how what we know of the brain and how we know that the brain works is simply through something's absence. Um, because we don't know that that part of the brain worked in a certain way until you find somebody who that, that part, part of the brain stopped working for and then you can sort of match it up. And so for me, you know, I think Oliver Sacks has taught me this great thing about like, well, what can we learn about, you know, people who have been sort of deemed absent from society, these, you know, disabled people. Um, and so I think, you know, I think there are m much broader, and this is, you know, if you're both neuroscience and astronomy, like these sort of broad overarching questions, I, I think are, are really, really powerful. Mm. Yeah. If Thank you. If I may share a quick comment about, um, some of the amazing astronomers in history who yeah. had disabilities. So yeah. in the early 1900s at Harvard Observatory, there were these women who were considered computers because yeah. at those times, yeah. they were not considered good enough for theoretical work. Yeah. And two of the women who made the biggest contribution, they also were deaf as well. Yeah. So I feel that maybe they had some kind of um, different perception. I mean, you might you might look at it as a, a different perception, but you might, and, and I think that there was something there, and I don't remember what it was, um, but also, you know, you sort of realize the amount of resilience that um, a disabled person is sort of forced to build, and and think that that might have also allowed that person to to get into the position that they were at in NASA. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Thank you. Um, do you have a favorite life hack, just to wrap up, Liz? Um, Other so than oh, sometimes, oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I attach a GoPro to my cane, and I'm, I'm joking that I'm filming a slow action thriller. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great tips. Okay, um, I, I've, I've learned a lot. It's been a joy. Yeah. You are uh, a total legend. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank an antidote, Liz Jackson. Thank you. While we've got you, subscribe, rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash ideas.